Welcome to episode 50 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. How was your break, Shane? Oh, refreshing. Excellent. Fantastic. Yes, yes. Good stuff. So we record two of these every week, back to back, and then put them out. And you know what? This is not the 50th episode. This is the 51st episode. So... <laughs> So the 51st mistake that I've made in announcing these. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, as long as, as long as I title it correctly, I think that's important because I've, uh, I think I screwed one up actually. <laughs> that's okay. We, uh, we're, we're really open to making mistakes with this podcast. You know, I've been listening to um, nice, good podcast on how to do podcasting called Better Podcasting. So shout out to the Better Geek. I think it's called the... Better Geek Network. Anyway, and uh, anyway, they, they do this podcast and they, they go into all kinds of really great detail on how to do a podcast, which I think you and I attempted to do the first time we did these podcasts back about eight years ago. And uh, we, I think we overcommitted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. There's a lot of production involved. There can be, or you can just do it and embrace the pauses. Yes, that's the naturalness of it all. Just that's let right. It, let let and, it happen organically. Right, and and the and the pops and the gaffs and the the hiccups and the the giggles. You know, you you get it all when you that's, download this uh, podcast. This is yeah. unedited and raw. Oh yeah. So yeah, they were talking about editing this week, and I was like, maybe we should start editing more. I think might be a few things I might wish to do eventually of my own accord, which is because. I tend to back up from the mic a bit too much. So I'm trying to, trying to sort that out. I'll, I'll listen to this one. I'm, I keep repositioning my mic every week now to, to see if I can, I can improve it. I made a few, a few modifications, but I just want it to be good enough. And that's what we're all about. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should just tape it to your face. <laughs> I thought <laughs> it goes where you go. <laughs> Funny. You should say that. No, uh, um, yeah. I thought about getting like a, like a clip on mic. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I I looked at those in that too. I'm also uh, very cheap and don't really want to spend any more money. And I, I've spent a little bit, you know. I've got an, an arm bracket here and a good mic and a USB power thing and you know stuff like that. But uh, you know as well, like when people are doing and trying to learn the night sky and doing uh, amateur astronomy, we are amateurs. We're we're sort of I guess hobby podcasters and just doing this for fun and. You know, uh, when people go to do astronomy, they're, it, it's going to be a learning process. Um, and it's also going to be just something that they're doing for fun. And I, I think that this is meant to be uh, emblematic of that, as they say. Yeah, yeah. I like it. So for this episode, you picked our favorite, did I get this right? Our favorite observations and observing sessions? Well, I thought it might be kind of neat just to share like some memorable observations because you and I have been looking at stuff for a long, long time. If we go back to our, our very first observations when we were uh, kids, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of things and um, I thought it'd be neat just to relive some of those moments and talk about some of those first uh, or some of those memorable uh, observations because, um, you know, I think they're kind of neat and, and like uh, some of them are probably rare observations, but some of them are probably common observations that might be just the first time you saw something. So I, th I thought it'd be an interesting topic. All right. So you ready to kind of go back in time? <laughs> yes, I am. I'm worried about what's coming next. Here we go. 
There we are. Now we're back. Where am I? You're back. (laughs) You're back in time. Where where are we, Shane? Well, uh, let me take you back to uh, this would be going to guess like 1985, maybe something like that. Um, I was probably about eight years old, um, somewhere in that range, plus or minus a couple of years. And I, I had an interest in astronomy, but I did not have a telescope. My parents did not have a telescope, but I was fascinated by the planets. I read about them. I had star charts. Um, it was my obsession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a local astronomy club um, in Regina here that, um, you know, for geez, decades has uh, provided public outreach um, by uh, having public observing nights. So people would come to the telescope, one of the telescopes that the club owned, and then some of the local club members would um, just show people objects in the sky. And the club still does that today. But when I did it, uh, they had an observatory that no longer exists. It was on um, College Avenue and Broad Street mm-hmm. in the city here. And uh, the telescope that they had in there um, was quite a, quite a rare telescope. It's an old telescope. It's a, a four-inch Brasher or Brashear telescope refractor yeah. that is brass. It was made in the very early 1900s and uh, is now on display at a uh, museum in Moose Jaw, an adjacent city to where we live. Yeah, uh, sort of. In, anyway. my, in my opinion, unfortunately, the, I feel like this telescope should be getting starlight. Oh, it, I would love to look through it again. There's yeah. nothing like a, t- a good telescope in 19, whatever it was, like 1918 or whenever it was that they, they purchased it, is still a good telescope today. If it was good for doing visual astronomy in, in 1918, and Brashear, I, I think Brashear was one of the people that made uh, some of E.E. Uh, e. Barnard's telescopes. Anyhow, that's still a yeah. good telescope today. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, if you go back to like episode three, I think it was when we did the, or maybe it was episode two, it was early on. Uh, we did one focused entirely on classic telescopes. I think one of the things I mentioned, cause I, I mentioned it all of the time when I talk about classic scopes is like technology hasn't changed. Like a telescope is not like an iPhone or a computer that just evolves every couple of months. Um, a telescope just gathers light and focuses it at a certain point. Yeah. Um, now there's been some improvements in coatings and some of the glass that's used, but at the root of it, it's really about like the attention to detail when grinding the glass and making the lens. Right. Um, that is really what drives quality. And some of these old telescopes are outstanding. Um, yeah. So anyway, kind of a digression there. Um, I would love to compare it to my Takahashi four inch. I would too. I would love to see that uh, under the stars again. Yeah, it's it's pretty big. It's like what it's got to be like an F ten or F twelve, I think. Yeah, I can't remember the focal length, and it's got a way an incredible amount of weight because it's all brass. You know, yeah, it's made to survive till the end of time, probably. Yeah, Not so sure it's what? unfortunate that it's that it's just in a museum because it would it would do fine in an in an observatory. And you know what? This is like a frequent question, and and somebody who was taking my astronomy class in August actually asked me about that telescope meant to tell you that yeah and i get that probably two or three times a year people wonder where it is and like they want to go and look through it so you know what i'm going to do i'm I'm going to after this i'm actually going to reach out to the president of the local astronomy club who lives three houses away from me yeah and uh, he actually lives on the next street but we're actually only I, i i say three houses we're probably eight houses apart and um 
And I'm going to say, because I know that they were, they were doing some talking about kind of reinvigorating um, some things. And I'm going to say, hey, like, there's interest in that. Like, if you guys get that running, I think you'll have like a little bit of interest. Because the thing with, this is a refractor. And you and I both love refractors. And the thing with refractors is it satisfies that, um, I, I don't know what to say, but the, but like the concept or, or, or whatever that people have when they approach and hear that they're going to be looking through a telescope, that's what they expect to be looking through. And mm -hmm. when they don't get that, there's a certain level of, of disappointment, but it really satisfies some sort of need or, or something when somebody says, hey, I want to come look through the telescope. And then um, and even if it's a really good Schmidt-Cassegrain or something, it's kind of like, oh, it's that, you know, or if it's like a Dobsonian, it's like, why am I looking through a cannon? <laughs> yeah, the, when you think of telescopes, I think the, the image people convey in their mind is, is a refractor because that just, it, it's in a lot of imagery and icons and things like that. Yeah, it's sort of like, that's the quintessential image that people have in, in their head that, that it's going to be like, regardless of the fact that, um, you know, in many cases, the Schmidt-Cassegrain is going to provide um, perhaps even a better image, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right, keep going. Yeah. So I was pretty young. My, my mom uh, took me to this observatory uh, for one of the public nights. I had no idea what we would see or what we were uh, getting ourselves into. Um, so went into the observatory, looked through the eyepiece and it was pointed at Saturn and I was blown away. Um, I still like, I don't, I actually have a pretty bad memory. I can't tell you what I did three days ago, most of the time, but this image of Saturn is just burned into my memory. Yeah. Um, it was so amazing. Um, the rings were, you know, so distinct around the planet. It was a very creamy color. Um, I could see some, um, you know, what I now know as the Cassini division in the rings, but I remember yeah. being able to see like, it wasn't like a, just a, um, like a, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? But like that there was some inconsistency within the rings. It wasn't just like yep. one thing. Right. Yeah. And set against this black background. I, I was convinced that they were really kind of pulling a trick on us that yeah. they had cut out a picture of Saturn and they had like taped it to the end of the telescope. I just, I didn't think you would be able to see that. And we and hear that a lot when, when you and I are out showing people Saturn through our telescopes, yeah. we, we get that a lot that people think that we've just taped a picture of it because it's what they expect to see. Yeah. And, and what's funny about that is like, while I, I kind of didn't believe what I was seeing, I don't know what I was expecting, to be honest. You know, I don't know what I thought I would see, but I still remember to this day, just being blown away by the quality of that. And it just was like, it, 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 and, and, you know, when you're eight years old, I think sometimes you have problem or, you know, difficulty processing, uh, you know, feelings and emotions and things like that. But it was such a humbling experience. And even now, like, you know, when I look at Saturn or any of these other objects um, and I start to think about the distance and the scale of the solar system and the universe and all of this kind of stuff, it, it, I still like kind of capture some of that initial feeling that I had for when I looked at my very first object. And um, uh, I thought I'd kick it off with uh, my most memorable observation because it's the, the one that's the oldest for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, what about yourselves? 
I think I ran out of. There we go. I still had some harp left in the in the in the system here. All right. Um, well, I guess like sort of on that similar similar note. Um, you know, when when I was uh, a kid, I I like can never remember a time that I wasn't interested in astronomy either. And I don't know how old I was, but uh, started watching lunar eclipses whenever there was one. And then I remember um, really kind of getting quite fascinated with them when I was like in, oh, like junior high or so and going out and watching meteor showers and that sort of stuff. And then I remember, I guess I was about 13 and I was uh, at a dark sky site on, on the water and I was on like the ramp to our, to our floating dock and it was low tide at night. And I was looking at, at the stars from a ramp I was lying on it, very like you're at sort of a 45 uh, degree angle, say, give or take, and, uh, you know, sort of a nice incline for, for looking at the night sky. And I remember thinking, you know what, I just, I'm going to learn all these stars. I'm, I'm deciding that right now. I remember it's so clear in my mind, because I was lying there and I was thinking it would be impossible to learn them all. But I was, I was lying there and I was 13. I was thinking, but I'm only 13. I think, I think I can do that. Right. I, I remember thinking this sort of, got, and this I've got was enough like runway in front of me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like I've got a lot of time here and a lot of space. And I think yeah. I can probably learn all of, all of these stars. I, I don't know what it will take to do it, but I've kind of been toying around with this business of astronomy long enough. Like as long as I can remember, I, this is what I want to do. And I remember like, that was like the first thing that I ever really decided I would sort of on my own kind of do right like and it had no other than for satisfying some sort of personal interest um like really like most other things that you do you know beyond sort of just the day-to-day you know hanging with your friends and or deciding to go swimming or something like that you know uh, that was very long like a very long-term plan you know like you got to get up and go to school and, you know, you got to make it through the grade and, and, and that sort of thing. But you have to do that when, when you're a kid. Um, and most of the things you more or less uh, have to do uh, in one way or another. And, you know, I was, I was an athlete um, and I'd always been involved in sports and that. Um, but that was even a little different because most of your sporting stuff you're focused on you know that next race or or whatever it is or or just that season you're not really looking or at least I wasn't because I knew I wasn't going to be a professional athlete um you're really just looking at that next month or or maybe the next year at most but this was something that was going to be I knew when I was looking at the sky I was like you know I really want to do this and this is going to take a long time this is actually probably going to take more time than I've already been on this planet to learn. Mm -hmm. And, and that kind of idea really uh, struck a chord with me. I thought that that is an sort of pun intended with the harp. Um, (laughs) And that really appealed to me that I was thinking, well, you know, I can, I wonder if I can do this by the time I'm 26. And uh, I gotta say, by the time I was 26, yeah, I knew those stars. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat that you had the, the fortitude at that age to say, you know what, I'm going to take on this really big project that's going to take me a long time yeah. and uh, do it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly what, what I thought 
it was going to be. And I guess that's always sort of been, been the draws that, uh, and, and I think this can cut both ways. And I've seen that with so many people is that um, it's best to approach astronomy with a very open mind because you um, otherwise will, will be disappointed. Um, sometimes the things that you want to see most are, are really faint or not visible. Right, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes as well, um, the conditions don't work out. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of disappointment um, and perhaps growing as, as a person that, that's involved. And I think that, uh, you know, patience, you know, and, and perseverance are, are two of the, the life lessons that, that I learned most in, in going through this, this journey. But uh, especially those, those 13 years I had a lot of like false starts, you know, where I would get really into it and I would learn some constellations and then I would just kind of burn myself out and then have to kind of jump back in again. Mm. But uh, yeah, no, I, I did it. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, that's sort of my, my earliest memories, but uh, <clears throat> I lived when I went to university, um, you know, I kind of thought that I wouldn't, I, I figured that I would kind of be giving it up in a way. So I hadn't bought a telescope or really much of anything yet. Um, and I figured going to university was going to be kind of hitting pause on, on this project. Um, and I wasn't going to university to, you know, to study any kind of the sciences or, or really anything like that, because I, I'm not, I'm not scientifically gifted. But uh, I end up living about uh, 40 feet below um, a large astronomical telescope. <laughs> oh, okay. Which, which I wasn't allowed to use. And this kind of bothered me to, to no end. You had to go and take the astronomy classes and whatever. So uh, I did know people who were taking astronomy at the university and uh, they would come and get me when they were going up in the middle of the night or whatever. And so I actually was able to go up and, uh, and do some observing through uh, the 16 inch Cassocrine at, at St. Mary's. Um, not a lot, probably maybe three or four times had some, and mostly just looking at the moon kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was, I was very fascinated in this. And then in my, in my second year, um, I went to study in, uh, in England. Um, and I knew that the stars should be about the same as in, as more or less in Canada, um, where we were, although we were a little bit further North than where, where, uh, where I'm from in, in uh, Canada anyway. So, um, but when I was there, I went to the British Museum and they had a display on, uh, on telescopes. And I think the uh, British Astronomical Society um, was there and handing out pamphlets and that sort of thing, uh, which, which was sort of more common than it is today. And so I was able to, to get some of those and some star charts from them. And I just got super reignited in, into the astronomy that you know, gee, you know, I'm going to be finishing university in a couple more years and maybe have a job hopefully and actually be able to, to afford a telescope. So I, uh, you know, ended up, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of getting back to Canada eventually. And then, uh, uh, I worked in a freezer and I had, it, which maybe sounds like a crappy job and it, it kind of was in a way, but it was like factory work. And I, I enjoyed it for what it was and, uh, it did pay well. So I was able to uh, quickly afford a, a telescope even before I finished university. So um, 
And of course, the first time I tried to buy one, I drove down to the States, which isn't that far from where I grew up. And I went to the telescope store. I bought the telescope and it didn't fit in the vehicle that <laughs> I had brought. I think I told that story before, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but eventually I did get a, get an eight inch Dobsonian and uh, Mars was the first thing, the Mars opposition in, I think it was, I think there was a Mars opposition coming up in 97 or 98. Um, anyway, it was, it was, uh, I think two oppositions before the 2003 and uh, that was sort of when I began telescopic observation. So uh, some some time ago now, but uh, yeah, those are my those, that's sort of my my early days. Right, as you were getting started in in the hobby we love. Yeah, exactly, and sort of in in between, you know, the the trip to England and um, or coming home from England and, and actually getting the the telescope. Uh, a girlfriend I'd had bought me a uh, a set of binoculars and some books, and I was really disappointed in getting the binoculars um because i didn't quite understand how those were used for astronomy but they are and uh super super useful so um i i wore those binoculars out if you can believe that i actually uh not kidding at all i wore the binoculars out using them so much on astronomy they're still at my at my parents place and i love picking them up and just looking at them you really can't use them much for astronomy anymore really much of anything um, I, I should bring them home and like put them in a case or something because um, all the, I, I use them so much and our weather there is very humid. All the seals broke in them. Mm. They were a waterproof binocular, but I use them so much in so much inclement weather that, uh, that all the uh, seals um, there's like, I think four or six sets of seals and they all broke and the plastic fell out and they won't focus anymore. And they're full of dust and a bit of mold and uh, yeah, but uh, I wore out a pair of binoculars learning the night sky. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, the next one I'll talk about here is um, a more recent observation. And I kind of, um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll work in a few observation under one category and, and it's the International Space Station. Um, I think a lot of us have seen it. It's when, when it passes overhead, it's the brightest thing in the sky typically. Mm. Um, and if you're able to catch it as it goes directly overhead, there's a, a little bit of a wobble to it. It seems to kind of go left, right, left, right. That's uh, in your which brain. Is, which is neat to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, but some of the memorable observations of the space station, um, naked eye, oh gee, I think we were all in grasslands at the time. And didn't we... We saw the uh, one of the Elon Musk uh, supply yeah, one of the missions. dragon supply ships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw that trailing it, which was kind of neat. And and over the course of the night, it closed distance on the yeah, space station. Yeah, yeah. caught up to it. Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, because space travel is kind of a neat interest of mine. Yeah, but the most memorable thing about the space station that I've done. Um, is so I was out with the local astronomy club and um, we were out at their uh, uh, the dark site at uh, Davin and it was uh, the sun was setting um, it wasn't dark enough for real astronomy yet and you know we're, we're really just socializing at that point um, but we knew that the space station was about to make a pass you know you can get all kinds of apps that will notify you when it's about to happen and also tell you uh, like the track or the trajectory that it'll take and where it will appear. 
So we had all of this information and uh, one of the telescopes that was out there was a huge one, um, a 20 inch uh, obsession reflector. Um, so this is a telescope that you need a ladder to look or to, to climb up to look through the eyepiece when it's pointed um, you know, at most objects in the night sky, it's, it's enormous and provides some incredible views, you know, with an aperture like that. Um, I've had a number of memorable looks through it. Um, however, on this night, uh, decided to get this thing basically pointed at the horizon, uh, where we thought the, um, space station would appear and then see if we could capture it visually and then just kind of hand track this telescope um, as the space station passed overhead. And uh, it was a success. We were able to do this. But what blew my mind is that looking through this giant telescope, I could like distinguish features of the International Space Station. Um, it was very easy to see like that there is a central chamber with these two arms extending out and then like almost like a copper colored or, or yeah, I, I guess copper is probably the right tone um, uh, panels. And those are the solar panels on either yeah. side. And it was so distinct. I was really, really surprised actually at, uh, at what I was able to see. It was very cool. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I had a similar view. I, I had a friend, I have a friend, uh, Clark, and he has a 12 inch, uh, or larger telescope. And, uh, he would do this quite frequently. He, he loved to get it in. Um, the telescope finder scope, and then he would track it and call people over to cycle through like our, mm. our little observing group. And mm. so uh, I've been fortunate enough to have uh, probably at least uh, three or four uh, good views like that same thing where you, you can see that uh, sort of classic looks like the satellite structure with the uh, main part and then the solar panels. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So just to dovetail onto that, um, uh, last year or the year before, I can't remember. Um, I had my little uh, Zeiss telemeter telescope, which is a 63 millimeter telescope. So compared to that 20 inch, <laughs> this is like a finder scope on the 20 inch. Um, it has a long focal length, so it doesn't provide the widest field of views. Um, and I was using an equatorial mount that night and I knew that the space station was about to pass over and I looked up and there it was. I had a wide field eyepiece in there. Um, so I thought, I'll see if I can just track it with this telemeter or sorry, telemeter and, um, uh, see if I can get it in the field of view. And, you know, I wonder what it would look like being such a small aperture. Mm. Uh, and I wasn't expecting much, let me tell you, uh, because using an equatorial mount, um, you know, was an added challenge on, on, or to make this observation fairly difficult, but I just lucked out, um, the trajectory that the space station was taking, uh, happened to kind of work into how I had my EQ mount aligned and I was able to track it actually quite easily. Oh, wow. Um, and what blew my mind was this little 63 millimeter telescope provided an, a very similar view to what I got out of the six or the, the 20 inch telescope uh, Is that so? many years ago. Yeah. Like I was still able to see a central, you know, structure yeah. with those two arms extending out that were a different color um, and it was very evident. Now, it you know the twenty inch was far more distinct. Image scale was far larger, but um, I was really really surprised at what a sixty three millimeter telescope could show me. So, you know, for anybody that has a telescope of any aperture, I think this is kind of a neat little 
observation to try to do. Um, yeah. If you know the space station is going to make a pass overhead while you're out with your telescope, be ready for it and just see if you're able to capture it and, and observe it. Because I think through just about any aperture, uh, you'll be impressed with the view. Um, hmm. Now, you know, binoculars, I, I don't know. Like if you had maybe some 20 by 80s, um, something like that, probably. I've never had much luck with the binoculars. I have 20 nope. by or 22 by 100s and I never, okay. yeah, it, maybe, I don't know. I, I think you need the, the telescopic powers. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I've had a number of, of memorable observations related to the space station that um, it's it just, it's, it's one of those neat things that you, you see, you know, this man-made structure up in space, it's moving, you know, there's people living there. Um, there there's, there's a lot of aspects around the actual observation that just make it an interesting target. Hmm. Very cool. I'm not that much, I, you know, I've been watching the space station since it went up. I'm, I'm not that, uh, oddly enough, I'm not that into space missions or anything, but I did, I actually did know Canada's first astronaut in space. So, okay. so I, uh, uh, when I was growing up, uh, my grandmother lived in a, in a small part of the city, uh, in Halifax and, uh, Mark Renault, um, who became an astronaut while, while we were there, um, just lived around the corner. And his, there, there wasn't many kids in that area. And so his kids were about the same age as my sister and I. And so we naturally had met up and we would play with them and go to their birthday parties. And he would do kind of a bit of a magic show and that sort of thing. And then um, he told us that he was moving you know, eventually after just like a couple of years. And uh, because he was going to be an astronaut and I was like, I didn't even hardly know what an astronaut was at that point. And then yeah, it was pretty cool. I get to stay home and watch him go into space. So, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, man, that's really, really kind of weird to have, like, I knew this person well, you know, and, and now they're in orbit around our planet. You know? Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Sort of a, sort of a funny funny thing so but kind of back to earth in our in our own ob observing sessions i have had i've had a few pretty good um and unique sessions so i don't know where where we want to start with this um one of the places where and I, most of my sessions are tied to place um because i think the place often makes for the the good session and there's, there's three really good sites that I like an awful lot. Um, and back home in Nova Scotia, there, there's a place that nobody ever goes to. I think it's one of the, it's sort of like, I don't know how to describe it. It's probably like Northern Saskatchewan in a way or Northern Ontario in a way, but there's nobody in this area called Liscombe. And it's, um, it, there's two Liscombs in Nova Scotia, and this is not the more popular one. And this is a game reserve. That's quite large and has a population of like two, if you and your, your, your friend are there. Because um, people typically don't, don't go to this place. And it's got all kinds of great spots for like fishing and camping. And people do have like camps in there, but you really have to know where they are. And there's like a lot of like logging roads and that sort of thing. And it's just so beautiful, little lakes everywhere. And you can go and camp on the lakes. Um, now it's full of black bears. 
so a, there's that. could that. be a problem. <laughs> and they can be a problem. The, the, so um, I think the only bear attacks that we've ever had in Nova Scotia occur in this place. Um, and so you kind of have to be there. And th there's one spot that they love to hang out. And we would go and observe in this spot because it was really good for uh, doing astronomy. I actually think there's a coal seam fire in that spot as well, um, which is not uncommon there. Um, and I used to go there with my friend Graham quite a bit, and it has uh, the best skies in Nova Scotia. It's super dark, uh, super pretty spot. It was only like maybe an hour and a half or so from my house, like where I grew up, about two, about two maybe two and a half hours from the city. Um, but yeah, well, well worth the drive. And free, like you just drive in, you're supposed to register with the wardens, um, I don't know how well that's enforced now. Back in those days, people just didn't. They'd be like, mm -hmm. are you even talking to us? Like, is there a fire? No, then don't bother us kind of thing, right? And then sometimes they would come out and like look through our telescopes. I just always felt like I should kind of tell them where, where I was going and what I was doing. Uh, I had a job in government at the time and kind of thought, Ooh, if I get in trouble for not notifying the park people who you're supposed to notify according to the rules and rags, then that could be bad for my my career in the same government so I thought well I'll just tell them anyway um, and we were down there once in 2003 during the Mars opposition and we had uh, another friend with us who actually found um, some of the sites down there and we had his agent McCassagrain and we were able to see some of those divisions in uh, in the polar caps uh, I think it was the south polar cap on Mars that year and uh, yeah we could we could see it super well um, and we could also see high-flying military aircraft that were like flying with lights on. Um, that was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, just generally that site is just super dark. So you can actually see like differences in tone of the uh, dust lane that runs uh, through the Milky Way. So there's some areas that are darker than others and uh, naked eye and through binoculars and small telescopes, you could actually see um, that, that some areas have more dust than others in, in our own Milky Way. And that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you really need a dark sky for that type of observation. Yeah, now that site is as good as it is, um, is only at around maybe 500 feet. Like Nova Scotia is not uh, very high. It's very, very close to the ocean and doesn't have a lot of mountains or hills. You're inland, but you're really not up that high at all. Maybe a couple hundred feet or so um, to, to maybe four or 500 feet at most there. Okay. So yeah, now how about grasslands? Do you have any really good sort of memorable observations? Because that's sort of my next um, place that I, I was going to, because I moved out here and I was pretty excited about um, getting into the grasslands, which had, which was not even declared at Dark Sky Preserve. When I moved here, it was declared like very shortly after I arrived here. And uh, what sort of what are your best or first observations of observing there? Yeah, it's definitely on my list. Um, and I've got a, a couple, two or three probably associated here with grasslands. Um, the first time going there uh, and just the naked eye sky was was like I, there aren't really words that I can come up with to describe it. It was stunning. Um, the, the brightness of the Milky Way, the detail within the Milky Way was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Um, 
you know, I, I also remember getting a little confused with the night sky. Like, you know, you and I spend hours under the night sky and, yeah. you know, after time and experience, you just get to know it, you know, like there's Altair and, you know, there's uh, like Andromeda, like you, you just know where things are and you don't necessarily have to reference a star map every time you want to look at an object. Yeah. Well, I, I got confused and lost down there. And at first I, I couldn't understand why. And then it became very apparent that, you know, I think we estimated one night that there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 Messier objects that we were seeing naked eye. Yeah. That, that I'm just not used to being able to see. So then it was throwing me off a little bit when I'm like, well, what is that? Where, you know, what am I looking at here? Yeah. It, it was incredible. Um, like, you know, we were seeing naked eye, um, like magnitude eight, open clusters, um, which shouldn't be possible, right? It, it's yeah. just incredible uh, how yeah. dark it is down there. So yeah. the very first time with the naked eye there blew me away. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I think you, you and I have shared stories about that before. So I think you had a kind of a similar awestruck experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, you really kind of set my mind in motion uh, that night, like you were, you were, you said, like you were kind of pointing out, it, it hadn't occurred to me and you were pointing out these, these messy objects, which I could see as well, but I was kind of more focused on, on, you know, pushing the limits of my telescope. And I was like, oh, what's Shane going on about now? And uh, like, no offense. And then I kind of came what's over. What's that crazy and, fool talking? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this has happened to me so many times, like, oh, what are they talking about? Like, should I be paying attention to this? And then like, it turns out, like it really sets me off on, on like a like a whole new thought and a whole new observing program which, which that really did like you really kind of um lit the fire to kind of figure out like you know how do you how do you observe um things sort of in the the original context right like back before there was light pollution and back before there was as much air pollution and unfortunately back before there was maybe as many of these giant forest fires um you know, like how, how did um, early astronomers like say in the 1500s and 1600s, maybe back as far as like the, the, you know, just before the telescope and early telescopic observers observe the nighttime sky. Um, and that, I think that's an interesting process. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and reading about that um, and then trying to, to reproduce that uh, at the grasslands because it is essentially I think a, about as pristine a sky as uh, as as you can get but that night yeah, in addition to seeing uh, so many of those messy objects you know like you said um, you know you can see M8 and M20 and 21 and M25 and you can see M22 naked eye down there um, and the list goes on and on and on um, in addition to that, um, I noticed something really peculiar that night, you know, cause, cause at this point I'm pretty experienced amateur astronomer. I've, you know, like I said, uh, spent those first 13 years, you know, really learning the sky. And then I observed for, for about another four or five years in Nova Scotia and observed for another four or five years in, in Ontario, and then, you know, moved out here. And so, you know, I really, uh, knew the sky and kind of knew what to expect. And that night I was looking at the sky and something was wrong <laughs> with the sky. Mm -hmm. And I could see that from time to time, like the, 
some of the patterns um, in the stars and some of the um, inconsistency, I guess, in those like sort of, um, I guess the patterns of the Milky Way that are at the limit of visibility were shifting uh, in particular in the north. And uh, I was looking at this and I didn't know what I was seeing. And I, and I said to Rick, who's a, who's a more experienced observer than I am, I said, uh, I'm noticing this. I, I just got to tell you, and I don't know whether it's I'm just tired or, or my eyes are playing tricks with me. He said that he'd been noticing it too, and that he thought that it was a natural air glow, mm-hmm. um, which I had seen or heard of, but had never heard of anybody seeing it visually. <laughs> so, um, and going back, it, it seemed like that's what we had observed. And then on subsequent nights, I was out with, you know, in following years, I'd be out with photographers and uh, people would take photos of it. <laughs> and so I was really surprised that you could visually see uh, natural air glow um, from there. And what that is, is that the atmosphere of the earth gives off almost like a weak aurora, I guess is the most simple way to describe it. And uh, from down there, you, you can see this, uh, see this occurring. Um, that was surprising to see that. Yeah, yeah. It's such an outstanding sight. Um, and, and I know we talk a lot about it, but there's, there's a reason why we drive three hours and we load up all sorts of gear. And there's really not much for amenities down there, like, say, no. running water, you know? <laughs> like, there's, or there's, food. Yeah, yeah, you you really um, on you really own. go there because you want to be there, and it's uh, for some people it's a beautiful park during the daytime, and and I love it during the day, but the night is what really draws me, and this is kind of a part two to my grasslands memorable observations or experiences, is um, is doing the public outreach like whenever we go there um, this year excluded because of the yeah. worldwide pandemic, but we we go down to the grasslands multiple times a year. And just about every time, one of those nights, we do a public outreach event. So it will start with some uh, presentations about the night sky, then a little bit of a constellation tour where we, you know, typically you do this. Um, You you point out the constellations in the night sky and sort of how to roughly navigate around. And then it's usually dark enough that people come to the telescopes and we show them all sorts of things. And we'll stay up as late and show them things uh, as late as they stick around. And, yeah, so um, nice they stay all night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. And, but so some of those experiences have been extremely memorable for me too. Um, yeah. There's things that you and I take for granted um, that we probably shouldn't. And one of them is the Milky Way. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I remember this uh, one gentleman was retired and he came from somewhere in the US. I, I think he was like... New York or somewhere Eastern US. Uh, he came to the grasslands because he wanted to see the Milky Way. He had never seen it before. Yeah. I thought, wow, you know, that's incredible because, you know, we see it quite regularly. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can probably list um, a dozen of these types of experiences uh, with folks that, that came from great distances because they've heard of how dark the grassland sky was there the one in particular that i'll i'll, I'll key in on was a, a young family from chicago um uh, you know one one young daughter and two parents and they had they were making their rounds because you know the way this is there's multiple telescopes set up and we encourage the the folks to go look through all of the telescopes and and kind of keep coming around because 
we'll look at different things and, and different telescopes will present dif- the object differently. So it's good to, um, to kind of rotate. Yeah. Um, so they had come to my telescope a few times. And then at, at one point, I, I think I was showing them Andromeda and uh, the, the, young, the young daughter was just blown away. In fact, she's almost beyond words. And the mom and dad said, so was it worth it? And she said, yeah, yep, mom and dad, this is perfect. And uh, so then I got out of them that they came from Chicago because their daughter wanted to see the night sky and they heard about this being the ideal place. And then they were turning around and they were going back home and um, it was incredible. So, you know, that night I, I, you know, I I tried to show them as many things as I could because of the effort that they made to get there and uh, just how, uh, how their daughter was, was enjoying it um, was really, uh, it was really cool. Like I, I love looking at things at the night sky, but I also love showing people the night sky because I kind of live vicariously through some of their responses and it helps me remember uh, some of my early observations and it just, it, it keeps things in context, uh, you know, of how special these views are and, um, how amazing it is to see some of this stuff. Yeah. And you're, re- you, you're really good at it. Uh, folks here are really good at sharing, sharing the nighttime sky more so than, than perhaps I am or, or my back background is, which, uh, perhaps is just more in the, in the formal education setting. Um, though I do love doing, doing astronomy myself. So I get asked before we go any further, what was your worst observing experience or or session (laughs) um so i was going to the saskatchewan summer star party annual event in uh it always happens august new moon and it Mm -hmm. occurs in cypress hills provincial interprovincial park um so i had loaded up my suv i took my 12 inch mead lightbridge dubsonian and my little 80 millimeter william optics refractor and when I was packing, I thought, why am I even taking this refractor? It's not going to come out of my vehicle. I've got a 12-inch Dobsonian that I'm taking to a very dark place. Um, oh, I think I remember this. I think, yeah, I, I think this is when you and I started observing together. It might have been. Um, <laughs> so ahead. my wife uh, came with me. and Because um, going to, to Cypress Hills is a little more civilized than going to Grasslands. There's actual restaurants. There's an actual yeah. hotel. You know, it's a little... There's a lot more luxuries that make it an easier trip. So yeah. anyway, we, we get there, we unpack in the hotel and uh, have supper. And now it's getting to the point where I need to think about getting to the observing site because we're going to do some public observing and, and then, you know, get into my own observing. Well, I, I go to uh, unpack. I take out the base for my Mead light bridge. I go set that up. Um, I grab the lower tube assembly. I, I put that in. I set the whole thing up, put the trusses in, the upper tube assembly. Uh, I get out my laser collimator because one of the things you have to do with these truss style telescopes is you have to collimate them every single time, you know, aligning the primary mirror with the secondary mirror. Um, just because there's a little, there's often shifts, you know, in, in, in terms of how tight everything is. And if you're not perfectly collimated, uh, and your mirrors are not aligned, your, your views will not be as good as they could be. So I, I put the laser in and I go to adjust my collimation bolts, which are, there's, there's usually at least three of these things at the bottom of your primary mirror. And you adjust these little bolts to tilt the mirror and that's how you align things. So I went to adjust these and they were gone. 
there was no more collimation <laughs> bolts. And, and so I thought, well, that's weird. Well, I'll, I'll try the next one just to see if uh, that will adjust it. Well, that collimation bolt was missing as well as the third one. Uh-huh. And then there's also three like things that like, once you get it collimated, there's these three adjuster, like kind of additional bolts that lock the mirror in that uh, alignment. Those were all gone too. <laughs> so what had happened was um, in transit, the, I, I had put the base, so the wooden base in my SUV, and then I had put the mirror, the lower tube assembly in the base. So it's, it's metal on wood and there's no real like shock absorption. So yeah. as I drove uh, it's a long you know, way to 400 kilometers, like it's a four hour drive. Yeah. It's a four hour um, drive. Yeah. And it's all paved, but there's still vibration. These collimation bolts just vibrated out. And then there's springs on all of these bolts that add the tension. Yeah. Those had disappeared. So all this stuff was spread in my SUV in the back. And <laughs> now it's nighttime. Well, there was no way I was going to find yeah. all of this stuff and put it all back together. Yeah, I remember um, this. Yeah. So I was so frustrated. So now I had to take all of this apart, put it back. Um, but, you know, what, what turned lemons into lemonade was I still had that 80 millimeter refractor that I, I brought. Uh, yeah. So I pulled that out and it actually turned into like a, a pretty cool observation because I was looking at Jupiter that night and I can't remember which moon, I think it was uh, Ganymede um was uh, was transiting so i was able to watch it um come out yeah i think it was behind jupiter and then all of a sudden it appeared and what's really neat is when it's close to jupiter like you can just watch it slowly separate um now when it's a far like a, a great distance away from jupiter it's harder to see that motion yeah. but it was really cool to see that happen but prior to that i was so frustrated and upset with my gear and how i packed it and you know, my first thought was, gee, you know, I drove all this way and now I can't observe. And then I yeah. remember the, the little refractor. So, you know, lesson learned too, like it is nice to have a backup plan, you know, whether yeah. it's even just a pair of binoculars or something else to observe the night sky in case plan A can't be executed. I hear you on that. Yeah. So what about yours? I'm sure you've got one or two oh, bad man. times. <laughs> I, I've had some real really bad observing sessions and it's almost like easier easier to pick from that like so my observing philosophy so i come from nova scotia which is traditionally a very cloudy and rainy place so you end up pushing things a little bit more like if it looks like it's going to be clear at all you have to go because it's always worth rolling the dice you might get a clear sky you might might not so i've got tons and tons of sessions where i drove hours and never got to observe or or, or you know the weather just wasn't good. But I think my worst session was, was when I was in Ontario. And uh, so where we were in Ontario in, in the Golden Horseshoe area was uh, relatively light polluted. So you had to drive about at least half an hour to get any decent skies at all. And you really had to drive about one hour to get good skies. Mm-hmm. And I was really craving some dark skies and I, I just moved there. And I heard that uh, the local observing group, they had like a, like an observing group and uh, they really were like, uh, I don't want to say click because it wasn't like a click at all um, because anybody could kind of go and observe, but they had some rules maybe is is the way to put it um, and some social norms and that sort of thing. But I kind of knew somebody who knew somebody that knew them. And I said, Hey, like I would like to do a session. They said, all right, well, we're going up. 
to the Bruce uh, Peninsula. And, uh, and it turned out this guy actually named Bruce, uh, his family had a place up in, in the Bruce, it was an old farmstead. And he was living in the same apartment complex I was in, just coincidentally, which is very coincidental considering there's like a million people where I was living, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so he was able to give me all the all the fine details on on where to go and that because I had never been up to the Bruce Peninsula, Ontario before. Just had moved there a few months uh, prior to this, and uh, so we it was going to be a camping weekend, and I really at the time didn't really camp. I'd only ever just camped for astronomy. And this was going to be a little bit rougher than camping I, I was used to. It was more like what we do in the grasslands. Um, there's places you can kind of go and eat up in, in the Bruce. And there's some nice places. Uh, but where we were going is was really far removed from anything. And a dark place, like Portal 2 kind of skies, like truly excellent skies. Um, but really what, what you do is you show up and he had, they had not cleared the fields anymore. They had fields. Um, and then, um, they would just go out and kind of mow around. They kind of had parked all this old farm machinery, um, around the edge of this field that was near the house. And then they would just kind of mow it down, um, when we were coming up there. So we had bought a tent from someone like a Canadian tire special, and we pitched it in amongst all this other farm machinery, um, with all the other, uh, like astronomy group members. And, uh, it was supposed to be really clear. Oh, and there's bears in this area too like a lot. Hmm. Um, we didn't see any, but, uh, but there were bears uh, that were seen in the area and bears would attack people in this, in this area sort of known for that. So anyway, so we set up and it's clear and just around sunset, um, this sort of foggy cloud moves in. So we just set up the telescopes and then we can't observe. And so we're all sitting around um, and then the mosquitoes move in and it's like the worst mosquitoes ever. <laughs> and we're just getting eaten alive. Um, and then the, the, the cloud kind of moves down and we were just on a little bit of a hill. And I don't want to say it was like a valley, but it was sort of like a bit of a long trough in the landscape there that was open. And, and the cloud kind of moved down there and just being up maybe 10 or 20 feet um, was enough. And so your, your feet were almost still in the fog but it was, it was foggy down sort of in this trough and then it was clear. So we started observing and then I can start to see like flashes in the distance. And I'd seen just enough thunder and lightning storms in Ontario at this point to know these are bad, bad news. And where I'm from, Nova Scotia, you can get bad thunder and lightning storms, but they're exceptionally rare. Um, and typically if it's clear enough to observe, you're not going to get a, a thunder and lightning storm. But Ontario, that's different news. And so I go, I'm out. And they were all kind of making fun of me for packing it in. And uh, the storm came in and it was probably moving, I'm going to say at least 80, maybe 90 kilometers an hour. And I just dive in the tent and it just flattens the tent and there's lightning bolts coming down. And we've had uh, set up in amongst all this old fire machinery. And I'm thinking like, we're just done for, right? <laughs> like, you know, like literally, I think some of the lightning bolts probably hit some of that machinery. I don't think it hit the stuff that we were right next to, but there was like, I mean, you know how people have like old fire machinery in the fields here sometimes, like almost like antique collecting kind of thing. It was like that. Um, oh, it was bad. Jeez, yeah, that sounds awful. You've had a few storms in your history. Oh, 
it, it was terrible. So anyway, <clears throat> we got up in the morning and uh, my friend Tim, who, who I just was getting to, I, I, this was like maybe our, our sixth or eighth observing session together. And he's this uh, pretty tough looking biker dude. And uh, he looks at me and says, what'd you think of that? And I was like, kind of like, well, like, how do I answer this question? Like, I was like, basically very nervous about this storm. So I was like, yeah, I, I didn't enjoy that. He was like, I was extremely scared. And that's all he said. And I thought, wow, like if this guy saying he was truly frightened, um, <laughs> you know, it's bad, right? Yeah, that's yeah. all he ever said about it. Like, I remember, like I observed with him for years after that. And, and every once in a while I'd come up and he would say, yeah, I was just truly for you. So that's one of the few times in my life that I've truly been scared. He would say, you know, and I was thinking, yeah, that was a dangerous situation. But anyway, our other friend, Clark, the guy who I talked about uh, before tracking uh, the ISS, uh, he had built this really beautiful eight inch Dobsonian, like traditional with the um, cement form tube. And apparently they hadn't been able to get all of their gear in. Like some of them got their tubes in, but he didn't. Oh, and it probably had five or six liters of water in it. Oh no, that's not good for a mirror. No, the mirror was okay. It, we got the mirror, like he, I shouldn't say we, he took the mirror out right away. He had built the telescope and so he dismantled it. But it was one of those ones with uh, almost a totally closed back. Like it was just like a piece of plywood or something cut to the size of the tube. And I think he had maybe even sealed it in there or something because it had water, it had water in the telescope. Either it, either he poured it out or it came out when he took it. Like there was like liters of water in the telescope. Um, and the telescope was damaged uh, pretty much beyond repair, unfortunately, okay. just, just from the, the way the driving, like it, not only did it get wet, I mean, just the rain coming down so heavy and being driven by really hurricane force winds, um, it, it just impregnated the wood and, and the cardboard in, uh, in that evening. It was, it was too bad. So he had to end up, end up rebuilding uh, that telescope. But yeah, they, they, like a lot of folks had wet gear that uh that night so no observing bad bugs bad storm that <laughs> was just, just about everything yeah <laughs> the apocalypse yeah. is upon you yeah so what was your best session sheen out of, out of all the sessions what was your what was your favorite session that you've ever had anywhere hmm, that's a really good question i've had you know so many good sessions um oh man you know i oh it's really hard it it would be a grassland session for sure. Um, you know, we've had some really nice warm sessions where you're pretty much in a t-shirt and shorts, which have been enjoyable. Yeah. But you know, maybe one of the, maybe one of the better ones was that night where it might've even have just, this is, I think was in the earlier days too, when grasslands wasn't all that busy. And I think it was you, Mike and I, Yeah. and you and I had just finished putting together those, super wide field, you know, two times 42 or whatever they are. Uh, oh yeah. Binoculars. And this is one of those nights and we've, we've mentioned it before where sometimes we, we go to these grasslands places or wherever. I remember that was um, a cold night. That was like a surprisingly cold night. I remember, I remember. Yeah. This yeah. Yeah. But um, you know, we brought telescopes like we always do. Um, and we thought, hey, we, we just made these binoculars. You know, we got some 3D printing done and put them together. Let's see what they're like. 
And wow, it was, so I don't think we actually took out telescopes that night. I think you sat in your chair, I sat in mine and we just panned around the sky and um, it's like having bionic vision with those binoculars. The field of view is so wide. It's almost natural, like your natural field of view. Yeah. But you're seeing like so much more detail and, and so many more stars. It was just like, I was wowed. And, and what's kind of like, what, what was really neat about that? Like we look at a lot of individual objects through our telescopes and those are fantastic. But this was like taking in the entire night sky, but, but seeing it so much you know, better. And, 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 and in a way it was different, you know, because yeah. you're seeing so much more. It, it, it just was like, it blew my mind actually how much I would like those little binoculars. And what would actually be also interesting is to plan to go to grasslands and just take those <laughs> and not yeah. be distracted with a, a telescope because it just is such a different way to take in the sky. Yeah. Well, I've done that. Like I, you know, uh, have, have been fortunate enough just to almost, almost like live down there in the summers, as you know, mm-hmm. and you know, I've had summers where I've done half a dozen or, or more trips. I think one year I did eight or nine trips down there of two or three nights each, um, essentially living, living down there as many nights as I could pack food and water for, and then coming home and sleeping for three or four nights here. And then, and then, and then doing another trip, uh, you know, as soon as the, the moon was out of the sky again, and, and usually doing two trips um, during new moon period. Um, yeah, yeah. But as far as my uh, favorite session goes, um, you know, and I'm just gonna, I'm really just changing this up because I think these grassland sessions are, are definitely the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. So it's a dark sky preserve. Um, it's a reasonable drive from where we live. In fact, we, we used to do more observing out in the fields here, but, uh, considering, it's it usually like we can get to pretty much pristine sky in an hour to an hour and a half. Um, but the time we drive out and drive home the same night, it's like a long day and it's, it's a bit rough doing that. We could have just driven down there in two and a half or three hours and done two nights and then driven home. So you're actually driving around no more and, uh, and you're under uh, even just a, a slightly better sky and, and it's a place that's set up for doing astronomy and, uh, red lights everywhere and that sort of thing. So, so it is uh, very ideal. Additionally, it's uh, the grasslands is at 3000 foot elevation, which in reading people like Stephen Amira, who've talked about this, that's sort of like the ideal height between getting out of just enough of the ground um, uh, atmosphere, ground level atmosphere. And, uh, and before you start getting uh, sort of too high that, uh, you know, it can impede your your vision or, or whatever. So it really is in like that sort of very, very much this, the sweet zone. And then the, uh, the plants down there are light absorbing as well as, as you've noticed um, for most of the year. And so when, when we do have clear skies in, in some places, you know, you have uh, the starlight coming down, it will reflect off the ground, but down there it, it gets mostly absorbed uh, by the, by the ground material. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But my, but, but just to switch it up, I'm going to, I'm not really going to say this necessarily like my favorite session, but I'm just going to point out like a a rather unique session that I had. Um, And that was uh, five years ago. I was able to uh, spend a night observing from the summit of Haleakala uh, Mm -hmm. volcano at 10,000 feet. Um, This is in Hawaii. 
which was something I always wanted to do since I started doing astronomy. That was always my goal was to observe from the summit of one of the volcanoes in Hawaii. Um, and so I was able to do that um, thanks to the local amateurs there. Um, so typically uh, you can observe near the summit or maybe even at the summit, but um, in, in there's a couple different summits up there. For the most part, you're gonna be in and around other people because you can drive up there pretty easily. Um, but then there's going to be cars coming and going most of the night. You're never going to get uh, 100% dark. That, but it's fine, but you're going to be sort of in a parking lot and, and a lot of people go out to watch the sunset or the sunrise. So there's, there's loads of people around. Um, but I'd actually made arrangements to observe in what's called the Astronomy Village uh, up there. And, and so was actually able to be on one of the other peaks. And, uh, and I thought I would be observing with people, but they just left me there alone, basically at the top of a 10,000 foot cliff. <laughs> And so it was amazing, um, just an amazing experience. I could see the big island to my south and I could see uh, everything from Canis Major down through Crux and, and all the, a lot of these sort of um, subtly constellations that we, that we can't see from here. And, and I was able to do a sketch um, there. And uh, it, it was just an amazing session. Um, at that altitude. I did like three, I had planned to stay all night, but after three hours in, in that low oxygen environment, I was getting kind of wobbly and I was alone, you know, and I had to drive down uh, by myself. I had a contact there that I could walk like 20 or 30 feet and he was in like a hut um, mm -hmm. and I could go in like, or if I needed anything and they were coming out and checking on me and there's like safety protocols. And uh, when I went up ahead, I met with the, uh, there was like a cultural advisor there for um, the Hawaiian indigenous populations. And so you meet with them and, you know, I kind of went through all the proper protocols and procedures, but, you know, after being out there and it was warm, I dressed very warm. I took my, you know, I'm probably one of the few people that showed up in Hawaii with one pair of shorts and a couple shirts and long underwear and fleece and down coats and gloves and hats and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so I dressed, I dressed for how I would dress here, like if we're observing at this time of year, you know, where it can get down towards zero. And it didn't, it was like 10 degrees or so, but I was cold. I got really cold, I think it was the altitude. And I had taken some food. I should have taken some warm uh, drink, but I, I, I couldn't, like just my situation wasn't such that I could. And I went up there super early, so I don't think it would have stayed cold enough. Um, and yeah, that was just a really, really cool experiences sort of I, I lived one of the ultimate experiences that that i had wanted to uh experience as, as an amateur astronomer so yeah that was uh yeah that was it but <clears throat> this is the other part of that experience was that um i went back so i guess it was the next night i was supposed to do another night up there but from my understanding it actually snowed up there the next night and they canceled my, my session. They actually, I shouldn't say they canceled. I canceled. They said I could go up, but it was snowing. So, yeah. But yeah. it was clear down below. I observed down below at the 3,000 foot elevation where I, was, where I was staying. You have to kind of plan it out. You've been to Hawaii before. You know how it can be difficult to make arrangements to do astronomy while, while you're on vacation, which mm -hmm. we kind of were. Then my wife was working at the university um, for, for a couple of weeks. Uh, but yeah, we... Uh, 
we were able to be there and uh, had decided to take a few days and stay at, at a higher altitude so that I could get acclimated and do some, do some astronomy. So that was really awesome. Um, but then two days later, I, I slept, drove home or flew home and then um, just slept at home one night and then drove down to Grasslands and did a session down there in, uh, I think it was like the last day of April or the first day of, of May that year. And it was really cool to be able to observe at Haleakala Volcano, um, which is one of the preeminent and best observing sites on the planet. And that's why they put all these big observatories there. Um, and then literally within a couple days, uh, three days maybe, uh, go down to our favorite spot and to actually be able to compare uh, our favorite spot to that spot. And surprisingly, like they are, they are so comparable. They're so close. Um, it's actually pretty surprising. So yeah, yeah. I, I would say that, uh, that the grasslands is about, uh, for, for, for a visual amateur astronomer, not saying for like a professional observatory, or anything like that, observing deep sky objects um, with small instruments, it's, it's about 90% of what Haleakala is. Uh, but of course you don't get those, those Southern objects and mm -hmm. uh, it definitely does get a lot colder here in the winter. So there's that. Yeah, yeah, very, very awesome uh, stretch of observing that you had there. You know, to, to observe in two premium locations like that is is amazing. Yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> this is maybe reflecting back on on a worst. Um, I actually ended up getting frost nip when I when I came back here because first of May, end of April. Um, typically, we still go below zero here at night, and it went to minus five mm -hmm. or six, and uh, I had jet lag. And I fell asleep without my hat on outside at minus five or minus six. And I, I woke up and it felt like somebody had hit my ears with a hammer. They, <laughs> they were so frost nipped. I didn't, I thought I was going to have frostbite. I thought they would maybe turn a bit black, but they didn't fortunately. Um, but they were, they were extremely painful for a few days. Um, but uh, yeah, so there, there was, there was that. Um, so might not have been the smartest decision to try to cram that much observing in into into that so i only did i was intending to go down there for a few nights and i only did one and then came back here and watched the transit of mercury that year so hmm. so anyway do you have anything uh else you wish to share about your observing experience Shannon? we're getting on in this podcast so yeah no i i'm good i i'm it was interesting to hear about uh you know the good and the bad um i enjoyed it all right, so we'll come back to the present day. All right, there. We're back now. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> right. this, this feels right. <laughs> so how can people uh, stay in touch with us? Uh, we are on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy. Um, and people can email us, um, actualastronomy at gmail.com. And leave feedback for us on any of the podcast platforms or YouTube, and we will uh, we'll respond. Now, as uh, I mentioned in the last episode, I was kind of poor at monitoring our email account, but I'll, I'll do better going forward. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll reach out to you if you reach out to us. That'd be great. Well, thanks, Shane. Yep. Thank you, Chris. And thanks to everybody for listening.